Hello and welcome to another episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group. And in today's episode, I speak with Elaine Jobson. And Elaine is the CEO of Jets Fitness. And I personally found this episode particularly interesting for two main reasons. The first is Elaine shares how the strategy that Jets Fitness follow is very much aligned to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I thought was a really interesting topic, and we explore that in a bit a bit of detail. And Elaine shares a, a pretty powerful story about her experience in that area. And the second is the importance that Elaine puts on her leaders investing in themselves. And I think that's important for every leader to think about how they can best invest in themselves to you know, increase their skill set, increase their capability. So happy listening. Once again, we'd love to hear what you think. See you next time. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Well, welcome Elaine to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it. So that the listeners have some context, can you share a little bit about who you are and the position you hold in the company where you work, please? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so my name is Elaine Jobson. I'm the CEO of Jets Fitness based here in Australia. Are you able to share an interesting fact that the listeners may not know about Jets Fitness? Um, so, Jets Fitness, the interesting fact is that um, we, are, we were um, founded by a, a guy called Brendan Levinson. And, you know, Brendan is a local boy based here on the Sunshine Coast. And, yeah, he was a surfer dude, personal trainer. And uh, yeah, just came up with this great concept of, um, you know, being able to, uh, you know, members attending a gym that didn't have contracts in place and was really convenient and low cost so more people could access it. So uh, yeah, most people think we're some kind of international big brand that's come across, but no, we were an absolute startup business of a local lad 10 years ago. Right, right. And is he still actively involved in the business? Yeah, well, in in a way, so Brendan um, owned the business for 10 years and uh, we were actually only sold to private equity last year. So he's still a significant shareholder in the business and obviously things have um, changed somewhat in our world um, since then. But uh, yeah, up until very recently, he was still very much the uh, majority shareholder of the company. But uh, but now we still see him from time to time, he still pops in and, um, you know, we have beers and keep in touch. But yeah, he's... Uh, He's moved on to um, to do other projects at the minute. So I'd like to take you back to the beginning of your leadership journey. Are you able to share with the, the listeners the very first leadership role you had and, and what was sort of involved in that? Yeah, when I think back to, you know, where my leadership journey started, I'm thinking quite way back because uh, you know, I've been in the fitness industry now for 24 five years I think it is this year so it's been a long long journey and I, I guess as many people do you just kind of fall into a leadership role you're not even kind of conscious of taking that position on until you're in it um, and my first um, pure leadership role would have been as a sales manager in a gym so I very much worked my way up through our industry um, all the way from the grassroots and um, you know the first job that I had 
that I had to have responsibilities over others was um, in a membership sales role. So working for a gym um, in the UK, actually, we didn't even really have a fitness industry back then. It was just um, gyms were just independent owned gyms. They weren't really the big um, the big names like Fitness First and you know 24 Hour Gym. They were just very much independently owned. So we um, yes, yeah, so I was I, I loved selling memberships myself. I was really good at it. And um, before I knew it, I was leading a team of people to do that. So uh, so yeah, it was in a very much a sales environment that I started my own leadership journey. And I'm always curious about people's learnings from their first leadership role. What were some of the biggest learnings that you had? Oh, I, when I think back to when I was first started in that leadership role I made ridiculous amounts of mistakes it was just there were so many things I mean I I literally learned how to do leadership on the job and it was only really later that I actually got the opportunity to to be trained in the skill you know to actually attend um, you know you know, training facilities and seminars and conferences and understand this is a real thing. So I think when I, probably the biggest mistake that I made in those early days was just assuming that everybody was like me, you know, assuming that everybody was motivated by the same things, assuming that everybody wanted the same things, that shared the same goal, was driven by the same things, and I was so ridiculously wrong. Um, and actually, I think that's probably at that point that I knew that I wanted to always be in a leadership role. I just fell in love with the the whole thought about kind of human motivation and how as a leader you get to influence those around you to achieve you know potentially more than they can on their own so um yeah it was those hard lessons of um not making assumptions and understanding every human being is wired very differently but then we have a lot of things the same as well so um so yeah i kind of fell in love with it at that point wow that, that, that's interesting because as i've done in quite a few of these interviews a lot of people have actually not realized and not made that conscious decision in their first role that uh, leadership's for them. So it's really interesting that for you, it was, uh, I love it and I'm into it. Yeah, I think for me, I, um, I fell in love with it because I actually figured out that I'm, I, I perform better when I'm around other people and I perform, I can get more out of a team as a leader than I could on my own. And, um, and I could just, you know, I, I quickly understood that the better I made them, the further that elevated me up. And that made an absolute habit of that. And that's become almost my trademark of, uh, you know, attracting and, and retaining the best possible talent that I can get because I've raised my whole career off the, you know, the ability to be able to do that and to build these amazing teams. And, you know, they've really taken me up to where I've achieved and um, yeah, fortunately, I figured that out pretty pretty early. That um, you know, that's a great way for me to achieve is to obviously have these great people around me. And are there any sort of significant impacts you think you had on the people that reported to you in that uh, that very first leadership role? Um, and the very first one, I say, we're going back quite a long way, but I think um, I mean I still know those people. That's maybe the the um, the most telling thing is that um, I built. I built in relationships. I invested emotionally into the people that reported into me at that point. And in fact, there was, um, there was a photograph that we took of us going to an awards event. And there was about, um, you know, at this point, we've grown the team quite significantly. It was 20, 30 of us in this photograph. And I stumbled across the photograph the other day and I put it onto Facebook um, and I put a Facebook um, message and tagged in anybody that I knew was in the photo and said, you know, tag in anybody else that you recognize from that very kind of first leadership role that I had with that sales team 
and it was just unbelievable. We almost had every single person tagged in that were actually are still all networked and we're all, you know, within a friend of each other. And um, and I thought that was quite nice to think that, you know, although 20 something years have passed, we're all still um, connected and we still have that, you know, relationships, the relationships, you don't stop knowing somebody just because you're not working with them anymore. And the stories that were coming out were things like, you know, oh, how cool it is. I still use that model you taught me all the way back then. And, and I've never forgotten those times that we spent together. So yeah, quite recently, I actually had the opportunity to receive some of that feedback and to know the impact that, you know, obviously myself and the rest of the team had on them all those years and years ago that, yeah, they're still talking about some of the stuff that we, um, we did back then. It's a fantastic legacy I think you've left there. Yeah, well, I say maybe it's something as a leader we we don't appreciate or we underestimate the impact that we do have on those that you know um, that we lead, and that you know it's it's a a huge responsibility. Um, so you know, it's people's lives that we are involved in. It's not just about you know coming to work and then going home. It's um, you know I always talk about you. You employ the whole person, the whole human. You know, it's often talk about humans here. You know, we, we employ the whole human. It's um, it's not a start and end, and uh, yeah, we have to invest in the whole person. So yeah, it's yeah something that stuck with me, and you know, very much I've taken even today. I used a lot of the same models and techniques and skills, and I'm still training a lot of the same stuff that I trained all the, all those years ago. And how long were you in that role? I think I was in that role for about five or six years. Um, it, but say within that um, within that one company, um, kind of we grew actually. When I first started in that company, we only had three gyms, um, and when I left, we had thirty. Oh. So my role kind of grew with the company. Um, I was really fortunate to be in with a, quite a startup with a guy um, who's an entrepreneur who just started up with a couple of gyms, and um, yeah, we grew it quite quickly and significantly, and then floated on the small stock market in the UK. And um, yeah, then I went off to work for a bigger brand. Well, I say bigger, they had 40 clubs instead of 30. <laughs> and that was based in London. So I, yeah, I went off to actually work for Fitness First, which may be a brand you've heard of. Yes, yes. So why did you decide to move to, to Fitness First? Oh, that was easy. Um, it was because the company that I was working for, the the previous one, was kind of still in my homeland. It was where I'd grown up and it was a, dare I say, quite a miserable city in the north of England. <laughs> and, you know, I had my sights, <laughs> I had my sights set on something a bit more glamorous. So I really wanted to go and um, to work and live the London life. And the opportunity came up for me to go and work for this kind of startup um, company. I say startup, you know, it had 30, 40 clubs by that point, but um, big ambitions and was growing at a very quick rate. So an opportunity came up for me to go and move to London and to live in the smoke and to be able to have that lifestyle. So that, um, and obviously, you know, more money was offered and better terms and all the rest of it. And I just saw a huge opportunity um, for me to be able to grow in this new business. So, so yeah, that's why I upped and left. And um, yeah, I've always been career-driven and um, wanting to achieve. So it wasn't a difficult decision for me. So, um, yeah, and I loved it. I loved the London life. And and what was the role that you actually moved into? Was it still in sales? Yeah, it was actually. Yeah, so that was going on to like a regional sales manager for still in the fitness industry. So I mean, fitness first started up um, and say it was a really successful concept so we were opening a gym every four days across the world 
and um, yeah, for about I think it was about another five years, I worked um, leading the regional sales manager, well, as regional sales manager in, in London, uh, managing a sales team of we probably had about um, eighty to one hundred people in our sales team. But it was a it was an interesting role. The very first day that I rocked up for that role, I came into an office and I asked all the sales managers of the gyms to come and meet me. And um, they they walked into the office and they were in like ripped jeans and casual t-shirts with no uniform wearing. And even two of them walked in with these great big buckets of Kentucky fried chicken (laughs) and sat down at the table and kind of put their feet up on the table. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm supposed to convert this lot into a professional sales team. And, you know, they just obviously had not had any real leadership or guidance before that. So we had some... um, we had some work to do. I had my work cut out, um, shaping up that team. And uh, yeah, so I started where I stood. And uh, But we built in a phenomenal sales team down there. We were um, by far the most successful uh, region um, in the country at that point. And yeah, that you know gave me a brilliant platform to be able to go on to even bigger and better roles in that company. I can imagine the marketing spin of a, uh, a sales manager with Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> Oh yeah, it was. It wasn't great, and having smoke breaks and all the rest of it. They weren't particularly shiny example of fitness, that's for sure. <laughs> Do you think you found it easier to move into that role because you'd had the previous leadership role? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I guess that's. I, I really like the sales environment because it's so black and white. Your results are up there for everybody to see, and because your results as a sales manager are coming off your, it's, it's a leadership reward system. The better lead you are, the better, you know, the better your results for your team are. So, um, you know, it's not difficult to go and get a job, um, you know, when you can showcase your results so, so, you know, plainly for everybody to see. It's, um, it's quite easy. And everybody's obviously always looking for great salespeople. I mean, especially back then, our industry was very sales driven. We we're in very much a growth phase. And um, yeah, I'm actually thoroughly grateful for the, all of that because, you know, all of my leadership skills have come off the back of being in an environment where you know you have to have your people which is a high pressured environment you know it's not it's not easy to be in a sales role so you're responsible for them feeling good about themselves being motivated dealing with um with failure on a daily basis you know being able to goal set them to have goals that are meaningful back to them personally as well for the company and um yeah I i was really fortunate i had some great mentors around me at that point and some really good teachers that were able to um to give me some hard skills on how to you know how to motivate people and how to um you know we call it you know managing high performance teams and uh yeah that's that was just a, an amazing time in my career of getting some very hard skills on how to do that well, were there any significant successes which stand out for you in your in terms of your leadership during that time um well, i think back to you know the ones i remember <clears throat> This, um, I was actually in that role when 9-11 hit and I was in one of the gyms at the time in the middle of London and obviously at that point we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, There was you know, talk that the planes were on the way to London as well, they were going to hit Canary Wharf. I wasn't particularly very far away from that. So it was a very nerve-wracking time and I think for the whole city when 9-11 happened, um, you know, it, this turmoil started and obviously anxiety levels built and I was responsible for a huge team of people. I had to keep motivated and keep focused. But, you know, all of this is happening around us at that point. So, I mean, the thing that was kind of stuck out in my mind is that, you know, 
it was probably reflective actually of the mood in the city as well that um you know with within my own team is leading them through that point of history of of you know channeling that what was potentially quite negative into something more positive um that you know you have to live the moment and you have to live the best quality life that you can and we're in such a powerful um you know product that we have with fitness that we're able to help people achieve that you know there's no point in being fit in 10 years time you want to enjoy the quality of your life right now and really by taking that message and almost you know encouraging them to get out into the city of london and and be a part of that and be a part of a positive message um we actually and it, this is just this wasn't our intention but it was just a, a symptom of it that we quadrupled our performance um for what our sales budgets were for that month we did four times as much and it was a record that the company never um achieved again but i think it was it was born off just the so the sentiment that was in the city um been able to lead the team through that and to rechannel what could have been quite negative into something more positive so i think you know, for my personal success in that role that's what it would be about it was just that memorable you know once in a lifetime situation that would never be repeated but it was yeah it will always stay with me biggest learnings from that role um i think you know i learned a lot i, I mean i would say that i cut i cut my teeth in um in that you know regional sales role um i had to manage a lot of different cultures so no i was looking after gyms that were in some of the most prestigious and you know highly priced suburbs of london all the way through to brixton tottenham um where you were dealing with riots and you were dealing with um, a lot of poverty so obviously the sales the sales people often reflected the different populations in the different suburbs so i had to get across managing a lot of cultural diversity very quickly and i think that was that really set me up for everything else i did from then because the role that I took after that was into Europe um to help with a situation that we had going on over there and I don't think I could have done that move if I hadn't had that foundation of just really learning how to to work with different types of people and still be able to get them to perform but understanding in different ways and yeah I mean it's just you know you can't beat being amongst cultural diversity to expand your ability to work with people yeah all right. Well, I, what I'd like to do is is bring you bring you forward to where you are now, and wondering if you can give the listeners any more detail about you know Jets Fitness, you know how many locations, and sort of just a few key key points. Yeah, sure. So Jets is um, say so it's an Australian company, born and bred, born on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, but we've obviously expanded pretty quickly off that. So at its peak, Jets is open in a club every week. So it very quickly grew to over 250 locations. Um, we're also international now. So we have um, just short of 60 gyms in New Zealand. Um, we've just gone into Thailand. Um, we've got eight clubs open in Thailand and we're in the UK and the Netherlands as well now. So we're, um, we're open about a club a month in um, the UK and we've got about um, five six clubs open in the Netherlands so we're kind of very very established obviously in Australia most people know our brand especially in the likes of Queensland Perth and Victoria where we we dominate um but uh you know it's the brand itself um 
I, I believe is is well respected in Australia. You know, we are what I'd like to coin as a good profit business. You know, we put the customer first. You know, that's shown through the fact that we don't do locking contracts. We don't do, you know, we, we call it um, work out on your terms. You know, then people can come any time of day they like. It's over 24 hours a day. They're in really convenient locations with, um, you know, based, you know, very close where people live or work. And uh, yeah, we're um, yeah, it's been a, a, an amazing success um, story for Australia. I think Jets, and it's it's a true Australian business, and um, you know, with a lot of Australian heritage, um, you know, especially coming from Queensland, and uh, you know, even our, our support office here is 150 yards from the beach. So it's um, you know, we're based in Maloolaba, and. Up until a year ago, owned by Brendan Levinson, who is the um, the founder. Um, although we're now owned by a group, a private equity called Quadrant, um, Quadrant Private Equity, who have really created something quite unique in Australia, where um, a fitness and lifestyle group is the group that now holds many of the different fitness brands. So we now we got purchased by them, and Fitness and Lifestyle Group now own Fitness First. They own Good Life. They bought Go Fitness, uh, Hypoxie, um, Zap Fitness. So a lot of people don't know that, but a lot of the brands now, the fitness brands in Australia, are all owned by the same group, the Fitness and Lifestyle Group. Wow, that, that, that's that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you you'd never get that. You'd never. Yeah, it's quite that. unique, actually. Oh, it's obvious. It's obviously a lucrative market. It certainly is. Yeah, we're still growing. Um, I mean, you know, you look at the Australian fitness markets, um, I mean, it's projected, it's still growing at a rate. This year will grow about 2.8%. Next, it's forecast to grow, averaging about 5 to 6% now for the next um, next five years. It's a $2.2 billion market. So, you know, it's uh, it's still very much in its growth phase as much as people go, you know, there's a gym, you know, springing up on my doorstep every other day. You know, it's, it feels like that because obviously you see them in prominent places. But uh, the fitness market actually in, the, in Australia is still growing because the penetration into the, into the population is still growing. So at the moment, it's about... 13% of the Australian population are a member of a gym. Whereas if you look at the likes of the states, that sits more like the 20%. So we've still got a long way to go before we have the penetration into the actual population. And that obviously means more gyms are going to open. So yeah, it's a really exciting time for us in our industry right now. And in terms of, of your role, how would you describe what you do? Well, obviously as a CEO, um, in charge of everything, <laughs> responsible for everything. Um, yeah, so I've been, um, I've been at Jets now for, uh, just over five years. And, um, you know, when, when I joined the company from, you know, Brendan brought me in because I think he recognized that as much as he'd had this phenomenal growth for the first five years, it was starting to stagnate. And the company was going from being a kind of almost fledgling startup to being something that was more mature. And I guess, you know, my reputation in the industry, my, my skill sets is very much working in competitive markets. So this is where I prefer to play. And um, yeah, so Brendan kind of brought me in with the idea of obviously preparing the company for its next phase of, you know, being able to operate in a more competitive market. So, so yeah, my role has really been that transitioning the business from being, you know, very much a growth business to being more of a mature business and obviously getting it back to growth. And uh, I've, built up an amazing team of people around me so I'm quite known for um, bringing in people um, that I've worked with before so although I have a team of six heads of departments um, two of those people have come from 
um, companies that I used to work for or, you know, have been with in the past and um, I've dragged them all over the world. And like Eddie, who's my head of technology here, worked for me in South Africa um, and then worked for me in Malaysia and now he's working for me here. <laughs> so <laughs> I like to um, I like to have people around me that I know. Okay. And obviously they, they, they bring a skill set which you really value. Yeah, it's like... Um, you know, it's uh, it's hard to describe. I guess it's like a family. You know, as you, you know, when you work in a senior role in a business, your I call it my inner circle. Your inner circle becomes really tight, and they know everything about you. They know what you're thinking before you're thinking it, and that is incredibly valuable when it comes to you know making huge amounts of change in a business because you don't have to get through that whole getting to know you stage. You can hit the ground running. So I don't um, build my whole team from people that have worked with me before because I don't think that's healthy either. Um, I think you need to have people that also understand the local markets and that understand the local business. Um, so I, I balance it out. Half of them will have worked with me before and half of them will come in new. And um, yeah, that's um, very much the team that we've built here. But obviously we're all, you know, we've worked together now for five years. So, um, so yeah, we're pretty tight. <laughs> I'd like to explore some of your more sort of broader general views on leadership. What's uh, the biggest myth about leadership that you've come across? I think the, um, the myth that a lot of people have about leadership is their motivation to want to be a leader. So I think sometimes it's a, it can be construed as having power and control and uh, being able to make all the decisions and have people do what you say to do because of the role that you have, because you are in the leadership position. And I don't think you could be further wrong <laughs> from that perspective because you know, the, um, the role that leader isn't um, obviously to make the decisions and to, um, and to have everything done your way. Your, your role is to engage every single resource that you have around you and you know, to be able to access um, even people that are smarter than you be able to make the best decision for, for everybody in the company and understanding that that includes many different stakeholders. That's everything from the people it employs through to the people that own it, through to the people that are customers of it. So um, so I think sometimes people think it's a yeah, great, I've got a leadership role, now I can just do what I want to do and I don't have to consult and I, I can be in charge and in control. Um, whereas actually um, it's not like that at all. You're almost coming up the back. Um, having to put ahead of you and think about every other person apart from yourself um, when you're leading a company. How do you describe yourself as a leader? I think if I was going to ask my team of people, you know, how, how do I lead? Um, I would say collaboration. I'm very collaborative. I, I definitely am better um, with my team than without them. So the you know the, the skill set as a leader that I've got is being able to harness a team of people to be able to achieve something that would never be achieved if they weren't harnessed. Um, so uh, so yeah, I'd say you know collaboration and um, you know very consultative and involved and um, you know I can squirrel into the minutia detail and you know go into a gym and <clears throat> go and you know go onto the front of house computer and have a look at what's going on <laughs> um all the way through to obviously you know sitting with the private equity in the boardroom and um being able to obviously strategize across the whole company um I've, i guess that's my upbringing of being you know coming from the ground up that um i've got a lot of knowledge around 
the whole business and um, I'm happy to, I'm just as comfortable in the front line in the gym as I am in a boardroom now. So I think, um, yeah, collaboration involvement um, is probably the style of leadership that I have. And, and is that something you've, you've deliberately fostered once you've worked out that that's one of your strengths? Have you deliberately tried to focus on that? Yeah, I think it's, it is understanding what you bring to the team. And um, I equally understand what I don't bring. So, you know, obviously with my background in sales, marketing and operations, you know, that I, I bring a lot of that practical knowledge into this team. Um, and, you know, and that might mean my, it's like today, my marketing, um, head of marketing walking in saying, I'm trying to create this sales tool. Can you just give me some advice of how to do that? Because she knows that I've sold 20,000 memberships. Um, all the way through to understanding that, you know, when it comes to, you know, which next point of sales system should we put in place? Um, I, I have, I'm low on the pecking order of, you know, whose advice you're going to get and understanding that there are people in my team that have got far better knowledge and experience in that role. So um, I think it's just knowing what you're adding in um, and also knowing what you're not. Just because I'm in the leadership role doesn't mean that I should just make the decision and get my way. Um, it's been able to extract that expertise and um, experience from other people. Because of the work that uh, that we do in terms of, you know, we, we, we train a lot of organisations and leadership capability and things like that, I'm always curious about any particular models, methodologies, frameworks that, that leaders use because um, I'm always interested in the practical application. So are there any that you use and find really useful? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, there's, there's, Free that I use, and I use them every single day. And in fact, our whole strategy has been modeled off the back of Maslow's. So Maslow's hierarchy, obviously, you know, the hierarchy of human needs, is the most brilliant model within my industry. And the reason for that is that it's, um, it's about how to achieve human happiness. And when you think about our members, our humans, and our people, and work, our teams working in the clubs are humans, it's the perfect model. So, in fact, the whole strategy, as I say, for the last four years has been built off that. And um, that's proven so successful for us that, you know, when we're thinking about our members, to put it into some some context, um, you know, we want them, we, you know, it's our uh, vision to be um, Australia's most loved gym. So how do we become the most loved? Well, we need to be loved by, our, obviously, our people and our members. So, we know that um, for them to feel happiness and to feel love, they, they need to go through these certain levels of things that needs being achieved to, to move on to that next level. So we do things like when our members come in our gym, we think, well, how do we make them feel safe and secure? You know, thinking about the bottom run of Maslow's. Um, so we know that they need to be inducted properly. They need to be shown how to use things. They need to be explained you know, how the door access tag works. So we actually build a strategy about how to help members achieve safety and security and we do the same for our team so for our people you'd say what makes them feel safe and secure in their role or having a proper job description having identified expectations of what what's expected of them in their role having a uniform on day one <laughs> makes them feel more comfortable in their role um, so we say we have this all documented out so strategically we actually apply Maslow's into our company on a daily basis where you know we are assessing ourselves against you know completing a, and achieving all these levels of needs so that we can move people up human happiness levels so it's a, that's a live example of what we use and then the um probably the other ones i use are 
we call it the culture performance matrix. So plotting our teams um, against the metrics at the left of, you know, where they fit with those cultural and values and attitudinal versus, you know, how they perform for us and having the four quadrants. And then so we do this on a quarterly basis with our teams and understanding what we need to do with each individual to obviously move them to what we'd call top right-hand box, where they're an amazing cultural fit and amazing values and attitude and also performing optimally. So um, there's a there's a two, and then situational leadership is the third one, which um, is something we apply into. We call it giving our people what they need when they need it. So what should the style of leadership be in their first 90 days? We're very directing and telling them what to do, and you know they don't need high motivation because they're super excited that they got the job, and then moving them through and say, okay, well they've gone through that now. You know they need to be having more of a coaching relationship with you than a supporting, and then a delegating. So so these are very live tools in our business that that we utilize pretty much every day so th those would be the three go-to that any of my team would be able to sit down and take you through how they'd actually plotted their teams out on those kind of um, metrics and maslow's been the biggest because say we we actually strategize the whole company off that one that's really interesting i've never heard that done that way is that is that something you brought to to the business yeah it's something actually with the maslow's um it's something I came across when I was working in South Africa, because um, as you can probably imagine, in a country like South Africa, Maslow's is a real thing. You know, this is when um, my, my situation in um, South Africa was that you know, Richard Branson had bought a company. He actually he didn't. He acquired a company that had gone into liquidation, but had five and a half thousand employees and 650,000 members. It was a big gym chain, and it had gone through quite an aggressive leadership style before it was gone into liquidation so there was a lot of people working in that company that were very um, very scared very intimidated by leadership um, you know weren't able to give great service to their customers because they weren't sure about their own job security so when we actually went across there and I was part of the leadership team that Richard had appointed to to be able to um, improve the culture and improve the performance of the company um, it was a lesson I learned very quickly because I was working on things um, to improve their spirits and to improve their happiness that wasn't working. You know, I was implementing strategies that were having no effect. And it was only actually when I went into the gyms themselves and spent some time on the floor with the, with the team that I, I learned why they weren't having an effect. And it was because we hadn't taken care of their basic Maslow's. We hadn't made them feel safe and secure. So, for example in South Africa, as you can probably imagine, the public health service is non-existent. So the hospitals are pretty horrendous there. And, um, you know, normally um, there would be something called a medical aid in place. A company would provide medical aid to their people, um, but this wasn't in place in this company. So um, you know, the, the staff couldn't access that kind of care. And it actually transpired when I was in one of these gyms that um, one of the maintenance guys stabbed himself by with a screwdriver by accident and cut his arm and he came to us and said oh you know I've done this accident it looked like it needed stitches so we cleaned it up and sent him to the hospital and I went back into the gym a couple of days later to see how he was and he wasn't there and I spoke to the manager and said well you know where has he gone and she says oh, I don't know I, I haven't seen him since so we eventually tracked him down and we um, we came across him at, at the hospital and what had happened was he'd been waiting for two days to get his arm seen to because he didn't have the private medical insurance. 
so that's joined the queue and been waiting there merely in the um in the waiting room and um gangrene septicemia had set into his um into his cut and it obviously got infected and he actually ended up losing his arm from his elbow down so he had to have it amputated for for that reason and as you can probably imagine, I was pretty devastated because, you know, that, you know, it was on my shift and, you know, I could have done something about that. And I had no knowledge that that's what the situation was in the country at that point. And obviously come in as a Brit, not fully understanding um, how bad the situation was with the healthcare. So that was a massive lesson for me that, you know, how can these people possibly be motivated by having a free you know, a free meal voucher is a you know as a reward if they can't even feel safe that they're going to get the proper care if they become ill or their families become ill. So that was something that we put in pretty much straight away that we put in you know free medical care um, for all of our people. And as soon as we started to do those things, everything else took traction and the levels of you know, the culture and the motivation and you know everything started to lift. And um, so. That's why I've always used now Maslow's as that to remind me that, you know, it doesn't matter how great your foosball table is or, you know, giving somebody their birthday off if they don't feel secure in having a job or what their job is or when I get paid, um, you know, am I getting paid the right rates, then, you know, there's nothing else they can do with their motivation level. So it was a harsh lesson, but one that was thoroughly learned over there. Wow. That's, that's a really puts in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly did. And I actually, when that, when that was, you know, it's a four, it's a four year, I was there for five years and, you know, that's a strategy that we put in over four years. And at the end of the fourth year, um, we were entering the BRW, um, great place to work. It was actually the Deloitte back then, the Deloitte great place to work. And we actually ended up winning it. Um, so we went from, I think, what was literally the most hated company because obviously the previous leadership we were, you know, any leader that came in were all hated. They were very suspicious of us to, I think, taking out, the top award for the largest um, company, you know, greatest place to work was, was a massive um, accolade to actually getting it right and, um, and you know, being strategic about culture, which I don't think people sometimes are. They think it's a bit of an afterthought, but it's critical. Mm. And what would you say your biggest leadership challenge is right now? Um, I think for me, you know, I always, um, I'm huge on succession. I was, I was um, really, um, coached well by a leader that I had um, back in the day about succession and succession shouldn't be about you know I'm going to be leaving who's going to take my job it's all too late at that point so I think the thing that I obsess of the most is you know is where's this company's succession coming from not just for my role but for all of the roles you know we are obviously based on the Sunshine Coast and um, we're a growing company we're doing a lot of growth internationally so where are those future leaders coming from how how can I bridge the gaps to get more leaders coming through? So I think that's my my role and um, that's my responsibility as a leader right now is to, is to plan and protect the future of this company and to project obviously where it is going to be. But you know who's my leader going to be in in Asia in five years time? Who's my leader going to be in Europe in five years time? And and most importantly, who's who's going to take over from me eventually? Um, so I think that's my challenge as we sit today. Um, you know we've We've got a great company and we've been very successful and, you know, we've, um, you know, we've obviously got, you know, challenges in the market with a very competitive market, but we feel very strong on those things. So I think for us, it's making sure we, we take the time to plan out of the future and to mitigate any risks to losing any of the things that we've already built. So, yeah, long range planning, I think, is um, the biggest challenge that I've got at the moment. 
How do you measure your success as a leader? I think for a leader to measure success, um, it has to come from those that you lead. It's... um, it's certainly not financial. I think it's uh, you know, the, the success is how successful I can make everybody else around me. Now, if you spoke to my team, they would say that I had an obsession with them. As in, you know, I, I have my team, they have to in, you know, invest 10% of their annual earnings back into themselves. And that's their money, not my money. Um, you know, because I say, well, I want them to to grow and to to be more successful. So I guess the best way for me to measure my own success is how, how successful they become and um, and how they're able to translate that into the people that they're leading. So, you know, when I feel that's that's good and I can see that working, and I can see that growth coming through, then, you know, I feel good about that. And I think that's how I would judge my success. Now, of course, I have responsibilities for, um, you know, for our private equity and our shareholders. So, of course, you know, the continued success and development of JETS and our international expansion, I think, is is a big part of that. And, you know, we were, you know, we were the innovators of the industry. You know, we were the first ones to go out with a no contract 24-hour concept. So, um, you know, going into the future, you know, we'd like to innovate again and to always be the leaders when it comes to um, shaking up the industry and giving everybody else something to think about. So, yeah, we're working on a few projects at the moment like that. But, um, but yeah, that would be a great, um, a great way to succeed as well. I'm always curious about how people or leaders build capability. You mentioned then that uh, you expect them to invest in themselves. Are you able to shed a little bit more light on that? Yeah, sure. So, um, as a company, we, we invest as well. But I think it's critical that they spend their own money. So, I actually had a... I had a guy that I worked for um, called Terry Q, who was a, he was the global sales director of Fitness First, and I reported into him. And actually, I actually sought him out. I wanted to report into this guy um, because he just had this habit of developing these most amazing superstars, like the best people in the company were coming out of his team. And I wanted to kind of infiltrate that and understand what is it he's doing. Anyway, I managed to get the um, get the role and to report into him. And the first thing he does is we sat down and went through this expectations exercise. And um, and he told me at that point, no, I expect you to invest 10% of your income back into yourself. And we're going to set up a bank account and I'm going to hold you accountable to this. And I have to say, my 26-year-old self was quite devastated at the thought that I couldn't spend my money on my car or my house or my holidays, but having to invest into learning and development. I was like, well, isn't that what the company should pay for? Surely that's not what I pay for. And he said, you know, you will, you will learn more, you will listen more, you will pay more attention if it's your dollars that you're using to, um, to invest in yourself. So I was kind of reluctantly made to do this. And it actually became a habit where, you know, every year I was funneling in obviously $20,000, $30,000 potentially, you know, of value back into myself and how exponentially I grew against perhaps other peers in my, in my um, career that I was able, you know, I, was, I attended numerous Tony Robbins conferences. I actually did Zig Ziglar when he was around. I went to Jim Collins, Stephen Covey. I actually had, I did his training course um, with the man himself. I would have never have done any of that if I'd been relying on the budget given to me by my company. So all of these things have made me into the leader I am now, and I've obviously got the fruits of that labor. But um, I'm just massively grateful to be made to do that, which has now become a lifetime habit. And that's what I'm passing on to my team now is, is having them have the opportunity. So I think, you know, in terms of what that money gets spent on, they have a lot of latitude and it could be anything from 
subscribing to the Harvard Business Review all the way through to, you know, going overseas and attending a leadership conference um, through to, but it has to, it has to show up in their role. So it needs to be things which are going to be um, helping them do their own jobs better, help them as a leader, help them with a skill set. Um, but yeah, I mean, in fact, only today I was going through this with our COO and, um, you know, discussing where he's going to potentially spend his his money this year and uh, what things he wants to achieve from a development point of view. But that's that's my job is to hold them accountable for growing and developing and becoming better. You know, if they if they you know invest 100% um, every year, they're going to be, you know, a thousand percent better in 10 years time if they don't invest anything and don't do any training or improve then you know, they'll just be doing the same year over and over so it's it's critical that's my job and how do you find people that don't know you when you go to them with that that idea how do people respond they, they probably think i'm nuts <laughs> so i think they um um how they respond well you know i've obviously had team members come in and um and perhaps people are more used to it now because I've become known for it. Um, but, you know, if you're not going to um, agree to that, because it's one of my expectations, um, you know, it's, un it's unlikely that I'm going to be investing too many company dollars because I think if somebody's not prepared to invest their own um, income into their own development, it doesn't have to be a huge amount, but they need to put their money where their mouth is. Um, you know, why, sh why should the company? So that would probably be my expectation. But you know, generally when it gets to my team, um, the understanding is there and the, uh, they understand the benefit that it's going to give them. And people that have worked with me have, um, you know, have accelerated their own careers off the back of being able to be that disciplined about investing in themselves. So I think the results are there to speak to themselves. That's what I like to think. But uh, I don't know, maybe they just think I'm, um, I'm a bit nuts and barking mad. <laughs> One of the things I'm always curious about is how, how people network. In my experience, a lot of leaders don't necessarily put a focus on it. So I'm always curious how people approach it. So how do you go about networking? Yeah, I'm a pretty natural networker. I do love to, um, to spend time with other people. So um, I mean, my, the challenge that I've got with my networking is that being based on the Sunshine Coast, we, we're, a, we're a national or an international business. We don't actually do a lot of business on the Sunshine Coast ourselves. So, um, so my networking needs to be more international than it is local. Um, although I do, um, I do a lot of activity on the Sunshine Coast to support that. So, I sit on the um, the board for the Sunshine Coast Innovation Committee, and um, you know that's just part of the way that we give back to our local community. And um, I attend so the Sunshine Coast Business Women's Network um, actually won the Outstanding Businesswoman of the Year last year, and that's been a brilliant networking opportunity locally just to to get to know their members and to attend a lot of their events but from a from a business from a jets business perspective um i spend a lot of time overseas so attending you know the different conferences and conventions that come with our industry um as you can probably imagine after 25 years of working in many different countries my, my network's pretty vast in our industry um so i just like to keep in touch and to um you know to keep uh, face time with those really important people that you know set the trends for our industry and um always have uh, interesting debates and conversations so but you have to be conscious of that that doesn't happen by accident you have to be strategic and keeping your network live and investing back into it and and participating and contributing it's not just about taking i think that's where networking can sometimes go wrong people are going to go into a conversation expecting to 
get something from it whereas I tend to go into those conversations thinking well what can I give you know what can I help to contribute and make their situation better and you know that's the the rules of karma it comes back to you eventually but you know it's um it's building relationships and investing and you know contributing where you can so thinking about the the future what is the future hold for you are there any specific career goals you're looking to hit is there anything that stands out for you yeah i think um you know we are still very excited about what's going on in our industry so you know very much at jets and very much um excited about our future here um i'll always look to expand myself as a person so i'm kind of writing a book at the moment that um you know it's just really about um you know my, my book is going to be about you know how to build a most loved company taking all of the learnings especially in my time in South Africa and how we took that company from being bankrupt to becoming, you know, one of the best, well, the best companies to work for in the country and, um, you know, how that's translating to other companies that I've worked for and, you know, how to use company culture and um, customer service to, to build a most of company. So that's, um, that's something which has become a goal of mine to get that done and um, to get it out. And then, yeah, beyond that, um, yeah, I'm, uh, my sales background has made me a compulsive goal setter, which, you know, it's all about experiences for me, travel, um, you know, I've always wanted to go and spend time in Canada and it's never really come across me as an opportunity. So I've just come back from Canada and um, just making sure I, you know, split my um, my goals, not just across career goals, which is very tempting, but, you know, to make sure that includes family and um experiences with the family as well so so yeah still plenty to go at and uh, yeah very much still in the uh, the throes of jets and yes yeah, say our international expansions are a huge opportunity for us at the minute so i was doing an interview for the podcast with someone and one of the observations they made with the executives that when they get to that very high level of, of large organizations the way they view their own development changes and their own development needs so they're less likely his perspective was they're less likely to go on a course and they're more likely to try to seek development elsewhere do you how do you develop or continue to develop yourself yeah that's a good question well obviously because i put so much emphasis on it from my team um i have to lead from the front with that stuff so and i always think you know as a leader the minute that I, the minute that they know more than me that i can't teach them anything i'm irrelevant because that's my job, you know, it's always to be able to challenge them and to, to have something I can teach. So the only way I can keep teaching, especially as you, you know, five, six years of leading the same team and of 10 years of some of them, is I have to be so conscious of my learning. So, you know, where do I get my learning from? Everywhere. I, uh, I'm a compulsive learner. So, you know, the usual books, um, but not any old books. I think over the years, I've also learned to be particular about you know which books I read and what I take on board and you know putting quality in as opposed to volume which is probably what I used to do um I love I'm a TED talk addict so every breakfast and I start a TED talk and finish it in the car on the way to work that's a that's a routine I've always had um obviously being across what's happening in our industry so I'm attached to numerous blogs, um, been able to keep educated on what's happening because, as I say, our industry is so rapidly changing at the moment. So there's you know, almost every week there's something new happening. And, yeah, I, I love courses. I love you know, having that out time of, you know, being able to you know, completely immerse yourself into a learning environment um, and also at conventions. So I'm, I made a point this year of going to 
all of our fitness conventions on my own and attending the sessions on my own to be able to just give that undivided attention sitting at the back you know with, with nobody around me not knowing who I am or you know what how my tattoo industry just been able to listen and observe and um, so I think it's just been purposeful with that with your learning yeah it's actually quite depressing to think that some people do do that <laughs> that they learn less the further up the chain you go because it actually needs to be the reverse yeah. The, the further up you have, the more people reporting into, the longer those people report in, the more you know, chance you've got of becoming irrelevant. So um, the more and more pressure builds for me to, to, keep, to keep on learning and you know, providing new things for them. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, your industry is changing rapidly. What uh, challenges do you think the industry sector is going to face in the coming year? Yeah, well, it's it's changing rapidly, but it's changing for the better, thank goodness, because um, we did go through a period of time where it was becoming very beige. A lot of, you know, a lot of people were doing the same, same, same all the time. It was just becoming big boxes with rows of equipment and not a lot of service focus and not a lot of innovation. Technology didn't really feature. And, uh, you know, it was just almost like a bit of a race to the bottom on, on price. Everything became about discounting. So and that was not a world I was particularly finding fun. So now that um, we've actually had something exciting happen in our industry, so we've got what we call the arrival of the boutique um, fitness. So all these small concepts that are offering almost um, team-led training has really revolutionized our industry and woken up its eyes to the fact that it's not all about having the most glamorous facilities or the best equipment. It's actually about the human interaction when it comes to having a workout. People want to be motivated and encouraged and don't necessarily want to have to think about what they're doing. They just want to follow somebody. And that's why obviously personal training is so successful. But PTs only one on one, one on one or one on two. So so what's been very successful is um, you know, having customers and members being able to um to enjoy fitness, being led by an expert on a bigger scale in a less glamorous facility and people are paying more for that so this whole discounting culture is coming to an end and it's all about adding value back into the customer giving them an experience and a service and getting the result that's why people pay us is you know to come to the club and get a result so i feel it's actually re-found itself from the early days where it was all about that kind of lost its way for a while and i think it's actually getting back to the right things so yeah we're really excited about that and that's you know, a huge opportunity for us at Jets. Okay. So as we come close to the end, are there any leaders that uh, you look up to or that inspire you? I think this, this, you know, I hope they're not cliche, but, um, you know, having spent time with Richard Branson, it's hard to not have him there. You know, there's so much that I learned from him myself. And, um, you know, this whole, he was really the one that taught me about, you know, the happy people, happy customer, which would have been a, something that people would see probably posted on LinkedIn and Facebook quite a bit, and, yeah. but it's true. And uh, it's not, it's not something that I had strategically done before where I've understood to make my customers happier. I'm actually going to elevate my people's happiness. So that was career changing for me and been able to build strategies with him and how to do that, um, you know, was an absolute revelation. So he, he would be there and obviously, you know, just from a personal values um, perspective, you know, he is, one of the few leaders that has been consistent and has shown and pretty much scandal free um, for the many, many decades that he's been in a you know, very public eye roles and has managed to make many, many you know, companies successful um, you know, off this basic formula of you know, giving the customer a better deal. So he would be one. 
And then I think, you know, having been in South Africa and, you know, seeing, you know, the challenges that country had and, you know, how it got led out of that, you know, grim time of apartheid, Nelson Mandela would probably be the other one. A very kind of different leader, very quiet and humble leader, but just to show what can be done with humility and humbleness. And um, and I think, you know, that's something that the world of leadership could do with more of, um, especially right now. And where can people find out more about you and about uh, Jets? Um, well, for me, um, you can visit my blog. I've got a blog called um, culturehacker.com.au. Um, where I just blog about um, different things we do at Jets um, and what we've done on, especially on culture and um, how we do some of these people initiatives that, um, that we've been talking about. So, yeah, that's where they can find me or on LinkedIn, of course. Um, and then for Jets, um, yeah, I mean, obviously we've got our Jets websites, but we actually hold um, culture days here. So if any of the businesses in the area want to come and understand what we do, um, obviously we're on the top 25 best companies to work for at Jets as well. It's a, it's a goal for us here. Um, so companies come down, come down and actually spend some time with us. We take them through all our initiatives and um, how we strategize culture and um, how to become the, um, you know, the great place to work and um, to be a most loved brand. So we believe in sharing that information and the more companies that can get better, we believe elevates it all. So, um, so yeah, people are more than welcome to, um, to get in touch um, through my blog or through my website. And um, yeah, if they want to come down and see more of what we do, they're very welcome to. Any last words on leadership? Um, I think with leadership, we're going through a really interesting time in the world um, of leadership where two very different styles have been demonstrated. Um, so I think this is a time for, you know, for leaders that are maybe more humble and um, with a lot of humility is to become perhaps a bit more outspoken and to, to you know, make sure that um, you know, each style is being represented. But uh, it's for the great leaders out there not to tolerate um, when they see something wrong, but to, to make sure they voice it and, um, you know, to make sure that, you know, leadership is coming from a place of, you know, great values and integrity. And, um, yeah, we just need to keep um, banging that drum. Well, Lane Jobson, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. All the best. Thank you. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.